0: James chapter 1. Take <laughs> so you look, uh, again, just one verse, uh, verse number 19 uh, tonight. Again, just to give you a little bit of context, James is writing to uh, a group of Christians that have been scattered abroad, uh, primarily Jewish believers uh, who were at the church in Jerusalem. Uh, when persecution came to Jerusalem, they scattered uh, from there and uh, now find themselves, they're really all around. And so James writes uh, to them a letter of basically how to be a Christian. This would have been one of the very first books of the New Testament that was written. So they don't have a lot of scripture to refer back to. They don't really understand a lot of the distinctions that would come from now being a follower of Christ as opposed to being a follower of the Old Testament law. And so James is not really writing about any doctrinal changes that are taking place. Uh, He's going to leave a lot of that to to, uh, the writer of Hebrews and to a lot of Paul's writings. Uh, doesn't really bring a lot of uh, background or narrative or story uh, to the uh, to the table. He leaves that to the, the gospel writers. He just says, hey, if we're Christians, hear how we are going to live going forward. And so uh, we find one verse here tonight. Uh, we'll probably read, let's do this. Let's read um, verse number 17 uh, through uh, verse number 22, 23. So 17 through 23, we're just going to focus on one verse, but it's important, the context that's around that, and we'll see why in just a moment. James chapter 1, verse number 17, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. We took a look at that uh, two weeks ago, where he says, hey, I'm going to do something, God's doing something new and special through you now, uh, who kick off the new covenant, and you were born again by the word of truth, verse number 18. Verse 19 is where we're going to be tonight, but we're going to continue reading just again for the sake of context. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's likened unto a man beholding his face in a natural glass, for, behold he, he, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way in straightway. Forgetteth what manner of man he was. As we take a look at this uh, passage of scripture tonight, again, verse number 19, uh, the, one of the reasons why I read the context of it here is because oftentimes, and I've even heard this uh, particular verse preached uh, in this way. People will just take that one verse and just focus on that, not looking at the surrounding context. We should be uh, swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And uh, we talk about, uh, I've heard again preached before, how we as Christians should uh, wait and listen, and God's given you two ears, one mouth. It means you should listen twice as much as you speak. How we we shouldn't give a, a quick judgment on things when they come. We should be slow to speak, and when we get in an argument, we get a disagreement with somebody. We should be really careful and with our, our words that we use, and be slow to speak, and we shouldn't be quick to wrath because wrath is not not of God. We shouldn't be angry, and this I've heard this again. Uses a verse why why we shouldn't be angry, and for people that are struggling with their temper, hey, memorize James chapter one, verse number nineteen. All of that. Hold up for a second. All of that is true. All of that can be backed up from the Bible, but that's not what this verse is saying. If you're like me, I was probably, I don't know, in my mid to late 20s when I realized, hey, everything I've been told my whole life about this verse just doesn't apply. Because again, this is going to be important when we get into understanding and interpreting the Bible, which we're going to talk about tonight. Tonight's message is a little bit more teachy than preachy. Uh, It's going to help you to understand the Bible and understand why we do things the way that we do and how we should properly look at Scripture. But you'll understand tonight, when we take a look at the study of the Bible, that context is key with everything. For example, you take one quote, bow down and worship me and all that you see is yours. Man, that sounds like a great quote, motivational quote that God gives to us. If we bow down and worship Him, He'll give us everything. But the context of that particular verse is critical. You know who said that verse? Anybody want to help? Yeah. Satan said it to Jesus Christ. Bow down and worship me and everything that you see is yours. So again, if we take that one verse out of context, it says something that, we don't want, that it doesn't actually say. If we look at this verse and understand it in context, the idea of being quick to hear Slow to speak and slow to wrath is sandwiched in a conversation about our response to the word of God. So those verses are not talking about how we need to not be angry or not be, pop off really quick with something smart I like to say. Again, I've heard that preached before. That's not what it's talking it's about. It's talking about our understanding and our response to the word of God, the Bible. And so, again, that kind of sets up everywhere we're going in in this case here. Now, since we've been born again, we should desire spiritual things rather than carnal. And so, again, as we look at this, again, it says, uh, verse number 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Again, this is couched in the context. Before, you were born again by the word of truth. After that. It's telling us that we should be hearers of the or doers of the word and not just hearers only. And so again, the, the context of this being the word of God. So as you are saved, as you begin to grow in sanctification, the idea is that you and I would desire spiritual things rather than carnal. As a Christian grows in their faith, they should grow with a hunger and a desire to hear the word of God hunger and a desire to be with God's people. A hunger and a desire for more truth, not less. A hunger and desire for a, a fuller uh, filling of the Spirit, as opposed to just a little bit that we have. And so, again, the idea is that as we grow in Christ-likeness, we grow in sanctification, that we would grow in our desire for spiritual things. Again, this is part of the sanctification process. Sanctification means I'm being more like Jesus Christ and less like myself. That's a growth process. Every single Christian should be growing in their sanctification. Everyone. I'll go so far as to say this. If you're not growing in your sanctification, something is wrong somewhere. Healthy things grow. It's just what they do. Our son Vanderlei, he's a, he's a big boy. He came out big. Uh, he uh, was uh, 10 and a half pounds big, 24 inches long. So, if you imagine having something that, that is two feet in size and 10 and a half pounds in weight wadded up inside of you, I can't imagine what that was like, uh, but my wife says it was painful. Um, and so, when he came out, it's a, he was born at uh, Kapilani Hospital. Uh, he's born with a bunch of little uh, Japanese and Asian babies in the nursery and stuff like that. And you walk up there and you look at the kids in the nursery. Nobody, nobody asked me which kid was mine. Nobody. Like I'm standing there looking. Nobody said, oh, which one's yours? They knew. You know, the big, huge white one is mine, um, for sure. Man, we would take him for his, his well baby appointments on the, the dot, like clockwork. We'd go in. they tape his head. they tape his body. They'd, they'd check his length. They'd check his weight. And they would show you the chart, where your kid is on the chart. He was always off the chart. Like, 99th percentile, yeah, he's above that, bigger than, than the majority of all kids his age. Just always was. And there came a point where he began to kind of level out and was up in like the 90th percentile instead of like over 100 and, and things like that, but he kind of finally became to level out. Now, if you can imagine, if we took him back for, say, his five-year appointment, and he was still 10 and a half pounds, you'd be like, whoa, something's not right somewhere. Something's wrong, because they have a chart where healthy children continue to grow. And if they get too far down on the chart, they begin to ask questions. Why isn't your child growing? Because healthy things grow. This is what they do. And so, for us as Christians, we were never meant to just continue to sip on milk. We were meant to grow, to be able to eat a full meal, to be able to be like Jesus Christ, and bring other people along on the journey with us. That's the idea. That's sanctification. But that comes as we begin to desire spiritual things, and we have more appetite for spiritual things than carnal things. One of the reasons why you and I struggle with sin so much is that we value Christ so little. You take someone who's totally given over to their own sinful nature, the problem is, of course, their carnal, sinful heart, but the problem is is they don't value Christ the way that they should. There are people who never attend church unless I text them on a Saturday and say, hey, hope to see you tomorrow, they'll show up. If not, they generally just don't show up. And here's the thing. I do that for maybe three or four weeks, and after that I give up because I'm not a babysitter, I'm a pastor. Either you walk with Jesus or not. If you want to walk with Jesus, I want to shepherd you and guide you. If you don't, hey, 100% on you. But here's the thing. Why don't people place importance on the house of God? Because they value God's people so Lightly. Again, you take a look at at Jesus, one of the parables that he gave. There was a man who went and found a field. And inside this field, he uncovered a treasure. And when he found that treasure, what did he do? He went home and sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field. Because in that field was the treasure. Everything was valuable to him. And you and I struggle with sanctification and a lack of growth, and we struggle with sin because we didn't find the treasure in the field and value it and sell everything to buy the field. we just like, oh, I guess there's the field. I mean, I guess we could do that if we wanted to, but imagine what we'd have to give up if we didn't. That's the opposite of sanctification. And you and I want to grow in Christ's likeness You and I want to grow in sanctification. Now, when we talk about sanctification, it really comes in two parts. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, they said, I thought that sanctification was automatic. (laughs) And the answer to that is yes and no. When we think about sanctification, there's two different types of sanctification that we find in Scripture. The first of those is what we refer to as positional sanctification. The moment that you are saved, you are automatically in Christ. That's positional sanctification. You're taken out of being an enemy of God. You're placed into the family of God. The word sanctified means set apart. You and I are automatically set apart when we get saved. That's positional sanctification. You're in Christ. You do absolutely nothing. It's by the grace of God, 100%, that you are positionally sanctified by faith and repentance, by being born again. You're automatically sanctified, set apart in Christ. The second type of sanctification is 100% on you. That's what we refer to as a practical sanctification. That means to become like Christ, you must put your flesh to death, be filled with and walk in the Spirit, and obey the Word of God to be like Jesus Christ. That's 100% on you. So we talk about positional sanctification, 100% on God. by the grace of God. Practical sanctification, 100% on you to grow in Christ-likeness. Now, that's super important because change doesn't take place automatically. I wish whenever we got saved, we just automatically obeyed God. I wish we could just automatically, our flesh died immediately, our spirit was fully alive, our spirit was fully in control, and we no longer sin. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? That's just not life. But sanctification is a process that we must continue through through the rest of our life of being like Jesus Christ. And so we take a look at sanctification. How does that happen? We're changed by the Spirit of God as we interact with the Word of God. That's how sanctification takes place. That's why you need to be in the Bible every single day of your life until the day you see Jesus face to face. You need to know the Word of God forwards and backwards. You need to become a student of the Word of God. Husbands, fathers, you need to be the theologian in your household. You need to lead everyone. And you might say, well, my wife sure knows a lot more about the Bible than I do. Good, fix it. Because God's call on your life is to guide and lead your family into spiritual fruitfulness. That's your responsibility. It's our job to to teach our kids the Word of God. It's our job to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ and our Christ-likeness. And so, we cannot, again, We cannot be changed to be like Jesus Christ without the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Can't do it. Now, you say, well, I can make changes on my own. Behavior modification and sanctification are two different things. For example, if you you struggle with anger, you can say, when I get angry, I count to ten. I take a deep breath, and then I speak. That's behavior modification. And how many of you know, nine times out of ten, I don't know about you, that just doesn't work for me because I spend the count of ten figuring out why I'm so angry and getting more angry, and I take a really deep breath so that I can let you have what's on my mind because that's behavior modification. We're just trying to change the way that we act, and that doesn't work very well. But if I can pray and ask God to change my heart because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks because we should protect our heart with all diligence because out of it are the issues of life. And I ask God to change my heart to be more like Jesus Christ. I ask God to allow me to exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit as I put my flesh to death and I seek to be more like Christ and seek to walk in the Spirit, I ask God to begin to cultivate a garden of, I don't know, let's say, fruit in my life that looks like love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Where does it come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. That's where the fruit of the Spirit comes from. So there's no lasting change in your life that doesn't take place By the work of the Holy Spirit inside first. Change always happens on the inside and then you'll see the external ramifications of it. That's the way that it always works. Well, how do I know how to change? From the Word of God. The Bible tells you how you should behave, how you should act, what's right, what's wrong. And so God's revealed to us through the words of Scripture what's expected of us as Christians. And how we should live and how we should function, what we should expect. That way I know that if I think that I'm walking in the Spirit but I have no love, I have no joy, I have no peace, I have no long-suffering, I have no gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, or temperance in my life, I know that something's not right and I'm not walking in the Spirit because God tells me in His Word that I'll have those things if I'm walking in the Spirit. And so if I don't, that tells me that something's wrong. So you see that the Spirit of God works together with the Word of God to guide me into sanctification and Christ's likeness That's again why the Bible is... Critically, critically important to you and I as Christians. Keep your finger here in the book of James. We're going to come back in just a sec, but turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 16. If any of you have gone through our discipleship program at Huikala, this verse will be very familiar with you. It's one of the first verses that you memorize. 2 Timothy 3.16, if you haven't gone through discipleship, every Christian should go through some form of discipleship. You need to know what you need to know about the Bible from the Bible. And and God's process for that is not only the preaching and teaching of God's Word, it's coming alongside another Christian and allowing someone to guide you and teach you and train you. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much of it? All of it. Genesis to Revelation. One of my pet peeves as a pastor is to hear anybody ever say, "Well, that part of the Bible is not really all that important." Ah! Ha, 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 don't say that. Now, could you say, "Man, the book of 1 Chronicles is not all that practical to your current situation?" Definitely, you could say that. But don't say, "Oh, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you can kind of skip that. It's just a lot of history and a lot of so and so begat so and so." Ah! 2 Timothy 3:16 all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that word inspiration means God breathed. It's the Greek word theonoustos, which literally means that God breathed these words. These aren't the thoughts of God. These are not uh, Paul kind of did his own thing and God kind of blessed it in the end, or God took some of Paul's mail that he wrote to somebody and used it as Scripture. Every word that is written in Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed. And it's profitable, it's helpful, it's useful. What's it profitable for? First of all, doctrine. Second of all, reproof for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So God's word is here to help you and I to be thoroughly, completely prepared for what? For all good works. Let's so show again. You cannot grow as a Christian apart from the Bible. You you just can't do it. But it's important to to break down what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. The Word of God is profitable, first of all, for doctrine. Doctrine tells us what's right. So we sometimes refer to doctrine as a body of truth. And I often say that doctrine is a very, very healthy thing, first of all, but doctrine either unites or it divides. For example, when we say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that's a doctrinal statement. That unites us together with other Christians throughout church history who have stood on the fact that Christ alone is necessary for salvation. So, when First Universal Church of Honolulu says that Jesus is one of the paths to heaven, there's many ways, then we would say that is false doctrine. And if they said, hey, we should get our churches together to have a worship experience, and you can call God whatever you want to call him, we would say absolutely not Under any circumstances whatsoever would we gather together with you unless we were to preach to you the true gospel of Jesus Christ and call out your heresy and false doctrine. Why? Because doctrine either unites us or divides us. A couple of weeks ago we had our teens go to a a church uh, in Eva Beach that were having a a teen revival and had a a speaker from California come and preach to, to teens we got a group of our teenagers and send them out there for that. Why? Because there's a, other churches that hold to the same doctrine that we do, that preach the Bible the way that we do, that challenge teenagers on ways to walk with Jesus and, and be a solid Christian teenager. We support that. We're on the same page with them doctrinally, so it unites us together. So doctrine always unites or divides. One time someone came in uh, to our church and they said, hey, uh, I love the church, love what God's doing here. Is this a place where I can exercise my spiritual gifts? (laughs) And as a pastor, I wasn't pastor long before I realized that's a loaded question. Because I, I know for a fact what they're saying is they're not saying, my spiritual gift is giving. Can I come and give here? My spiritual gift is service. Can I come and serve here? And I said, well, that all depends on what your spiritual gift is. And they said, well, God's given me a gift of speaking words of prophecy over people and telling the future and telling the, the, what's going to happen in their lives and things like that. Will you give me a platform to be able to do that here? Absolutely not. We don't do stuff like that. Because prophecy in the Bible is speaking what God has already spoken. I don't need you to tell me the future because God's already told me what he wants me to know in his word. And so uh, we talked about the fact that we as a church are cessationalists. We believe that supernatural sign gifts existed for a a period of time but no longer necessary for the church today because we have a completed copy of God's Word and God's already spoken. And we agreed with the book of Hebrews that in times past, God spoke through prophets and men of God, but God has spoken to us in this day by His Son, Hebrews chapter 1. So we don't really need a new word of prophecy. We just need to go back to the old word that God's already given us and already completed that's forever settled in heaven Amen. (sighs) She did not like that answer. But here's the thing. Hey, that's okay. This church probably isn't for you. And you should find a church. I can name you two dozen that would love to have you come and speak a word of prophecy with them today. But we don't do that here. And that was a point where doctrine divides. And here's the thing. That's really good. Because in Scripture we find That doctrine either unites or divides. So when we talk about the Word of God being profitable for doctrine, that's what's right. For reproof, this tells us what's wrong. When we think of reproof, this is what points out the error in our lives and the way that we're living that's not right. And so the Bible not only tells us what's right, it also tells us what's wrong. Then the Bible also gives us is profitable for correction. This is how to fix what's wrong. This is how to take the error and make it right. This is how for you and I to repent or agree with God and get back on the right track with the way that God sees things. And then lastly, instruction and righteousness is how to stay right. And so, if you think about the Bible as good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction and righteousness, it goes like this. What's right, what's wrong, how to fix what's wrong, and how to stay right. That's what the Bible does for us. And so, when we say that the Bible is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice in the life of a Christian, that's what we mean. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know to, to live the Christian life. So, again, we pre- place high, high importance on the Word of God. Turn back to the book of James, chapter 1. <laughs> Again, James places a high importance on Scripture as well. If you take a look at verse number 18, it refers to God's Word as the Word of Truth. Take a look at uh, verse uh, number 21. Receive with meekness the engrafted Word, which is able to save your souls. Verse number 22 just calls it the Word. and verse number 23, the it calls the Bible a mirror or a, a glass, which means same word as we would use for mirror. So again, touched in here in that verse number 19, which some people use as just a, a way to not lose your cool and to, to think before you speak, is all this talk about the word and the importance of the word. And again, mind you, this is, this is critical for you and I to understand about this passage. When James is placing a ridiculously high importance on the word, understand that James at this point, as he writes to these Christians, none of them have seen a shred, not one verse of the New Testament at this point. But he thinks that the Word is so important in the life of a Christian. But he's never, again, James would have been one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. He hasn't even seen the Gospels yet. But he says the Word is everything. The Word exposes your heart. The Word shows you who you really are. The Word is able to save your souls. Again, the longest book in the entire Bible, Psalm 119, is written about the importance of the Word of God and how much the psalmist loves God's Word. And again, the psalmist, as he writes, had access to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And again, I think if you and I were talking about the best parts of the Bible, we probably wouldn't choose the book of Leviticus, right? But again, you and I have access to more of God's Word than James did. We have access to more of the Word of God than Paul did. Peter even said this, we walked and talked with Jesus. I heard, his, I heard Jesus. I saw the Word of God speak the Word of God. I was with Jesus in the holy mount when he heard the voice of God from heaven. But here's what Peter says. We have a more sure word of prophecy. The Bible is actually better than hearing God's voice audibly, Peter said. And so as James talks here about the word, it's so, so, so important. The word delivers us from temptation and sin and delivers us into a loving, satisfying relationship with God. Oftentimes, when I'm sharing my faith and talking with people about the gospel, they'll begin to ask questions. Well, if I get saved, can I still fill in the blank? Can I still get drunk on the weekends? Can I still smoke weed? Can I still have sex with my girlfriend? Can I still look at pornography? Can I still go to parties? Can I still continue to, to cuss and watch R-rated movies? <laughs> and I always struggle with conversations like that because it's like, hey, you don't get it you don't understand the depths of the filthiness of your sin. Because you're asking, can I have Christ and my sin at the same time? And the answer to that is, no, you can't. And she said, so does that mean that if we get saved that we can't sin anymore? No, that's not what it means. But it means if you're given a choice between Christ and your sin, and you choose your sin, you are not saved. The whole point of coming to Christ is repentance. Repentance literally means a change of direction. You cannot pursue your sin and pursue Christ at the same time. They're on opposite spectrums. you got to pick one or the other. So to come to Christ, you must renounce and repent of your sin to come to Christ. Now, does that mean you can't go back to your sin and can't continue to sin? It's not what that means at all. But if you're not willing to choose Christ over your sin, first of all, you're not saved. Second of all, you don't see the value of Christ. So when it comes to the Word of God, sometimes people are like, oh, the Bible's so boring. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations and guidelines and thou shalt not. Friend, you've never really read the Bible. You don't understand the Word of God. And again, the Bible says that this Word of God is spiritual and it's discerned by spiritual people. And so chances are you might not be saved or you've never really read the Bible or read the Bible with understanding or never had discipleship because the word of God is the last adjective that I would give the Bible is boring. It's so rich, it's so alive. And it not only, and again, people look at it as it just leads me away from sin and temptation. No, but it not only leads you away from sin and temptation, but it leads you into a satisfying relationship with your Father. That's the benefit from it. That's the good stuff that comes from being in the Word of God. So look at verse number 19. First of all, it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren... Let every man be swift to hear. So you and I need to be quick to hear the word. Again, this is not talking about your and I relationship with uh, interpersonal relationships. And again, I've heard it preached that way before. I've heard this, these verses preached at marriage conferences and how this will help your marriage to be swift to hear and, and slow to speak and slow to anger. All those things are helpful. You can find Bible principles of that in the Bible for certain That's not what this verse is saying. It's talking about your relationship with the Word of God. And friend, I want to encourage you to have a hunger, a desire to hear the Word of God preached. For me, I get the opportunity to preach God's Word, but I still crave preaching myself. I have several preaching podcasts that I listen to every single week because I want to hear the Word of God Again, Romans chapter 10, verse number 17, tells us faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You want your faith to grow, you need to hear the Bible. You have a friend that needs Jesus, share the gospel with them. Well, they don't believe it. It doesn't matter if they believe it or not. The word of God is the word of God. Oftentimes I'll be talking with people and sharing the gospel, sharing my faith, and I say, Hey, what do you believe about God? I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in the Bible. I believe that the, the Bible is a book written by men. Okay, that's fine. Let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that we've all sinned against the holy God. The Bible says that we stand in danger of God's judgment and wrath because of our sin. The Bible says that God's punishment for our sin is death and hell for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for your sins and pay for mine, that anyone that would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior could be saved from their sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you can be saved. And somebody might say, well, I don't believe any of that. Okay, that's fine. But the only way you'll ever believe it is by hearing it, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If the word of God is quick, that word quick means alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, I can take a sharp sword, shove it through your gut, and you can tell me that it doesn't hurt, but the fact of the matter is you're cut by it. And the word of God cuts, and it cuts deep. And it might take some time for the Holy Spirit to allow to break up that ground that's in their heart, but once that seed of the word of God lodges in, Man, and finds good soil, you can't stop it. So again, you and I should desire to hear the word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 5, Paul says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you have heard before the word of truth of the gospel, which is come into you as it is into all the world, bringeth forth fruit as it does in you, since the day you heard it and knew that the grace of God and truth. Paul says the, the word of truth has come. You've heard coming to the entire world and is bringing forth good fruit in your life. You see a spiritual Christian will crave spiritual things whereas a carnal Christian and the unsaved man will crave carnal things. As you grow in sanctification, you grow in your knowledge and understanding and obedience to the word, you're going to have an appetite for spiritual things. Just automatic. As you grow and you'll have a distaste for the things of this world and a distaste for carnal things man there used to be a time where we would flip through channels on television and see TV shows that we thought were funny but as we grow in Christ likeness and sanctification they're not funny anymore i don't find any humor in it i'm not entertained by it i'm repulsed by it Man, this has been man, 10 plus years ago. The show that was really popular was all these little kids and, and beauty pageants. It was fun to watch all these moms fight and put fake hair pieces in, on a three-year-old's head and try to win money and just drama and cattiness and awful stuff. And it was fun and funny to watch. But a decade of walking with Jesus now like, makes me look at stuff like that and go, that's disgusting that you would treat your child in that way, that you would be that way with other people, that you would allow those things to take place in your life, it's like not even funny anymore. I don't have a stomach for it. And so many of the things that the world calls entertainment for the Christian should be repulsive. But the carnal Christian doesn't think so. They're enamored by things like that. I remember when Angela and I were kind of sort of kicking the tires of walking with Jesus. Man, we wanted Jesus on Sundays, but we wanted to live for ourselves the other six days of the week, and it doesn't work very well that way. So carnal Christians will still desire carnal things and the unsaved man has a, a whole appetite for the things of the world and carnality. But as we grow in Christ's likeness, as we're quick to hear the word, our appetite changes. Man, for me now, I've been serving Jesus full time with, with my life vocationally for 18 years now. It means I've been working for a church, serving the kingdom for 18 years full time. When I go to the gym and somebody drops an F-bomb, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. It's just like, oh, I can't even hear that. Like, not, I can't even hear that. Because there was a time in my life it was second nature. Those things rolled off my tongue like nobody's business. When I was surrounded by people in the military, when I was uh, a public school kid, right, the bus to school, man, that was part of our vernacular. But now as I walk with Jesus and I've tried to distance myself from carnality and worldliness, when I hear those things, it just grates on me. I was so so grieved. Uh, Man, a month or so ago, I, I've been rotating barbers because all my barbers that I like end up jacking up their prices because they think they're Pablo Picasso with scissors uh, and it's just like I just can't pay $65 for a haircut right and look this guy's good but like $65 like no and he wants a, a $30 beard trim it's just like my wife's hair doesn't cost this much and my hair grows so fast, I'm like a cheetah pet. I get to get it done like every three weeks. And so I've been I've been rotating barbers and stuff like that. And so um, there's a, a man that serves on our staff. I won't mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him. Uh, but he had, he had mentioned a barber that he had been going to. Uh, and so uh, I, I tried this, this barber shop out. And I went and I sat down and the, the dude's cutting my hair and he's doing good work and stuff like that. And then he and the other barber began having conversation that was highly inappropriate. And then the other barber begins talking about girls that he's dated and people that he's met online and things that he's done with them. And, and my st- I just feel like I'm going to vomit in the chair. Like, I don't want to hear this. And then another guy comes in and sits in the chair, and the other barber starts cutting his hair, and then they start talking about ladies in a, a filthy sexual way. And I'm just thinking to myself, just hurry up and get me out of this chair. I, I, I cannot hear these things. It was, it was just the vile, most disgusting thing in the world that I would heard of, of the way that he was objectifying women. And I'm thinking to myself, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my daughters, and to think that there are disgusting animals like this out in the world that view will one day view my daughters in this way, I don't, I don't have the appetite for it. And the dude finished cutting my hair. I was going to get a beard trim. He was like, "Oh, I forgot to trim your beard." I said, "No worries." I'm good. I'll take care of it myself because I couldn't get out the door fast enough. Now, was there a day where things like that wouldn't bother me? Absolutely, for sure. But as I've grown to love Jesus more and love the things that Jesus loves and hate the things that Jesus hates, things like that are repulsive to me to where when I got out, I felt like I needed to vomit and take a shower because I just felt dirty being in there. And here's the thing, I cannot drive past that barbershop without having that feeling in my stomach now. Why? Because I have no desire for the carnal things of this world. I greatly desire the things of Christ. It's an appetite thing. That's why we should be quick to hear the word of God because it's what changes us. One of the marks of a regenerate, saved heart is a love and a hunger for the word of God. One of the indications that you are a child of God is your love for God and for the Word of God. Now, does that mean if I don't love the Bible, I'm not saved? That's not what it means. It means you need a heart check is what that means. But again, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we'll grow in a desire and a hunger for the Word of God so what we need to make sure that we do is that we're quick to hear, we're quick to hear what the Bible has to say. Secondly, slow to speak. We should understand what God's saying before we make the Bible say what we want it to say. Slow to speak. Again, the context of this is the Bible. One of the clear marks of spiritual immaturity is when you think that you're an expert on everything spiritually related. Hey, look, I want to hear what God's Word says. I want to hear what truth, again, capital T, truth, says from God's Word before I make a judgment on things. <coughs> we need to look at the Bible and see what God's Word says, not prove what we want it to say. Several years ago, I grew up in Kentucky, and, and basically there. Two major churches, uh, church denominations, if you want to use that term, uh, where I grew up in Kentucky, uh, one would be Baptist and the other would be Church of Christ. Uh, and so there was a, a Catholic church that was probably 30 minutes away and there was a family one time that moved to our, our, our small town from Michigan and they were Catholic and they would drive 30 minutes out to go to the Catholic church on the weekend, but that was an anomaly. I didn't know anybody that was Catholic growing up at all. And so then, you know, you hear things about Catholicism, you see things on the news, you read stuff. And I didn't really know a lot about Catholicism. So one one day I went uh, and and bought a a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it's basically their doctrinal statement in book format. And if you want to know about Catholicism, just read what they say. And again, I'm not watching YouTube videos and reading snippets on the internet, I'm reading your doctrinal statement, what you believe. And, And man, I was blown away by how much, get this. Bible was in there. Blown away. But here's the problem. It was phrases from the Bible. It wasn't the the, the Word of God in context. It was using a snippet here, a snippet there, to to say what you wanted it to say. For example, in the book of James, it tells us we should confess our faults one to another. That's their basis for confession. That you should go and tell a priest the sins that you've done. And that's their basis. That one phrase in James, confess your faults one to another, is their basis for confession. And I realized, wait a minute. You're not saying what the Bible says. You're saying what you want the Bible to say. That's why it says be slow to speak. Slow to give a judgment as far as what God said. Let God's word speak. That's why when you and I read the Bible, we need to make sure that we interpret it appropriately. We take a look at the interpretation of Scripture. It's sometimes referred to as hermeneutics. I remember when I was a kid, I thought hermeneutics was the study of a guy named Herman. Not really what that means. It's the disciplined, methodical study of the interpretation of Scripture. When we take a look at hermeneutics, we need to understand who wrote this? Who were they writing to? What does this mean for Christians today? What language was it written in? What words were used in this context that bring about this truth that we're trying to understand? What is the context? What's before it? What's after it? For example, people oftentimes, when they talk about, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about homosexuality. All it says is that you can't do that, but it also says you can't eat bacon and you can't eat shrimp. <laughs> okay. Friend, you don't understand the interpretation of Scripture because those were Old Testament commandments. Well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Would you be willing to bet $1 million on that statement? If you do, I promise you, you'll lose. Romans chapter 1, just off the top of my head. Homosexuality. The Bible also uses the word effeminate. you know what effeminate means? It means homosexual, those who practice a homosexual lifestyle. Paul lists that in the list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, again, people who make statements like that, first of all, don't understand Bible hermeneutics, and secondly, haven't read the entire Bible. But you and I need to be careful because we don't want to grab a verse out of context and use it for our own purpose. For example, verse number 19, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Let's use that for a marriage conference. Three ways you can improve communication in your marriage. Ah, you just took that verse out of context and you didn't use it appropriately, and so that's hermeneutics. It's also important that we understand what Bible exegesis is. At who we call it, again, we place a high importance on the Bible, not just Bible thoughts. We want to know if God has breathed every single word of scripture, we need to know what he meant when he breathed it. So exegesis helps us to understand that. The definition of exegesis, the act of drawing out the meaning of a biblical text and explaining it. The process of seeking to understand what a text communicates on its own by understanding language, vocabulary, historical context, and the intended audience. That's Bible exegesis. And I tell you this because if you're ever looking for a church, find a church that exegetes Scripture. Not three lessons from the life of Joshua. (laughs) That might be helpful in some context, but you don't need that every week. Five tips for a carefree weekend. You don't need that. You need to hear what does the Bible say. Not what do I think the Bible says. Not what do you think the Bible says. And it became really popular kind of in the 80s to have quote Bible studies where we would gather together when we talk about what the Bible means to us. What does that verse mean to you? And the idea was this. It was all rooted in liberalism and progressive Christianity, which was a thing back in the 80s, believe it or not, still. And it was this idea of this, that the Bible isn't the word of God. The Bible is the thoughts of God. And the Bible only becomes the word of God when you adopt that truth in your own life and apply it to you. Then it becomes the word of God. But that means that this is not authoritative. It only has credence in your life if you actually believe it. Which means you can kind of take or leave the Bible and what parts you like and what parts you don't like. So again, we don't gather together. Even our Wednesday night where we have discussion groups or our small groups, we don't get together and say, well, what does the, the Bible mean to you? What does that verse mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. I care what did God mean when he said it. Now, I can say, how does that apply to your life? We need to make application once we've exegeted the Scripture. But I don't care what you think about it, how it makes you feel, or what your interpretation of it. I care what does God say. That's exegesis. That's how we must approach the Word of God. Slow to speak. We don't get to speak in our own understanding into the Bible. We need to understand what God has already said. And the opposite of exegesis is eisegesis. Eisegesis is not where we're looking to pull the truth out of the text. We're trying to take what we want to say and shoehorn it into the text so that we can say what we want to say. Eisegesis is the opposite. It's the mistake of reading into a text rather than deriving meaning from it or imposing a preconceived notion or a foreign meaning into the text. For example... Again, I've heard this more times than I can count it. Incredibly popular, especially at like youth rallies and stuff like that. David was a young teenager and he fought Goliath, who was a giant. Unwinnable battle, but God was with him and God was for him. And you've got giants in your own life that you want to conquer. And your giant might be your peer group at school, Your giant might be a boss that doesn't understand you. Your giant that you're facing this week might be financial difficulty, but I'm telling you this, God is with you. Take your slingshot and slay your giant. That's not what it's saying. I've even heard the most ridiculous eisegesis statements like this. David took five smooth stones in his bag. The first stone was prayer. Stone one, prayer. Stone two, Bible reading. Stone three, sharing the gospel. Stone four, church attendance. And stone five, the most important stone of all, tithing. (laughs) What? We laugh at that because it's the most silliest thing you've ever heard. I've heard that message preached before. And you're sitting there scratching your head going, I don't think that's what this means. I don't think that's what God was getting at when he told us the story of David and Goliath. I think here's the story that God was telling. How about this? That there was a giant who everybody was terrified of, but there was one man who was the hero, and he went where no one else could go. He fought a battle that no one else could fight. He won a war that every single one of us would have been annihilated by, and he stood victorious over the giant, cut the giant's head off, and held it up as a trophy To show his power and his sovereignty while all of the armies scattered at his awesome presence. Who is that one person? Not me and you. That's for sure. It was Jesus. And so the story of David and Goliath doesn't point back to you and I and the giants that we have to slay. It points back to Christ and the greatness of Christ and our need for a savior You and I aren't David. You and I are the Israelites biting our fingernails on the sidelines wondering who's going to go fight for us. That's exegesis, not eisegesis. And so, again, when we understand Scripture appropriately, we don't try to read into the Bible what we want it to say. We pull from the Bible what God has already said. That's why for us it's important that we understand Bible exposition And again, I'm dropping a lot of hermeneutical terms on you tonight because I want you to understand why we do what we do and should God ever lead you from who we call a Baptist church, what you need to look for. You don't need to look for a cute worship band. You don't need to look for a a playground for your kids to play in while you're in church. You need to look for a place that faithfully exegetes the Bible and preaches God's Word and stands solid on doctrine. That's what you need in your life. That's what changes lives. Not some cute skit or some cute play. I went to, Angel. and I went to a church one time. It was not a, a Baptist church. It was not a faithful Bible preaching church. It was a false teaching church, but we didn't know it when we went in. And no lie, they had their flag presentation and it was a bunch of dudes in tights with twirly flags that came up and, and, and jumped and leapt while they played some Christian song in the background. And I'm looking at this going, does anybody else think that this is, first of all, really weird or really queer? Like, am I the only person that looks at this and go, guys in tights shouldn't be leaping, waving flags in church. <laughs> and then people scratch their head and go, guys just don't like going to church. Guys don't like to see... Men in tights waving flags. I found that if you tell men what the Bible says and you exegete the word of God, people enjoy hearing truth. And guys who might not like church will like to hear what God has to say, but they don't want to see dudes in tights waving flags. So again, and they say, oh, it's art. It's us connecting with culture and things like that. The word of God connects you with culture. I don't need flags and dudes in tights to be relevant. I need the Word of God to be relevant. So when we talk about exposition of God's Word, it means to expose what the Bible says. Now, are there times where we have to take a look at lots of different places in the Bible to put together the story of what God's telling? For sure. For example, last year I preached on depression and suicide in the life of a Christian. We took a look at a lot of different verses throughout the Bible we didn't just stay in one in por- one portion and exposit it. That was a unique experience here. But look, this morning I talked about fear. Psalm 27, verse 1 to 14. Just go down the list and say what God said. And people are just, whoa. Man, that message was amazing. No, the Bible's an amazing book. Say what it says. I'm not some deep-thinking theologian. I'm just saying what the Bible says and people are blown away by it. Why? Because the Word is the powerful part. So again, we need to expose the text. We never ask the question, what does that mean to you? But rather, what does God mean for me? That's appropriate Bible exposition. Every week I say what the text says and how that applies to your life and what you should do with it. Again, your opinion on Scripture is worth as much as a hill of beans. My opinion on Scripture is worth probably less than your opinion. Put it that way. It just doesn't matter. And people shouldn't come to hear what they want to hear. They should come to hear what does God say. And look, if you stick around long enough, you're going to hear enough of the Bible to realize that you don't like some of this stuff in the Bible. And that's okay. Because we're swift to hear, slow to speak, and next it says slow to wrath, verse number 19. You see, when the Bible is offensive to us, we have to change. Well, I don't like what it says. I don't like it either. It doesn't change the fact that God's spoken. There's parts of the Bible that I don't like, there's parts of the Bible that I wish weren't there. Oh, which one? The one about this sin or that sin? No, I I don't like Revelation chapter 20 at all. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before a great white throne. Him who sat on it, the earth and heaven's faces fled away. And he opened up a book and opened up another book, and it was the book of life, and they were judged out of that book according to their works. All those whose names were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the second death. I hate that. With every fiber of my being, I hate that. Wish it wasn't in the Bible. It's there. So again, I can get mad at God for sending people to hell, or I can do everything I can with every fiber of my being for every day for the rest of my life to keep people out of hell. I can get mad at God because there's a great white throne judgment, or I can do something about making sure every single person that I know and come in contact with has the opportunity to not wind up at that great white throne judgment, and that's what I choose to do. And so when we realize that our feelings are in opposition to the Word of God, it's a clear indication that our feelings are wrong. Well, I just think it's so chauvinistic that women can't be pastors. Okay, you're wrong. You're not wrong because I say you're wrong. You're wrong because God's Word says you're wrong. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If a man desires the office of a bishop or a pastor, he desires a good work. Let a bishop, a pastor, be blameless. Let him be the husband of one wife. I didn't say it, God said it. Well, things are different these days. God's word is unchanging. It's forever settled in heaven. Well, I think things should be different today. Then you think wrong. I don't think you're wrong. God says that you're wrong. So again, that's why when it comes to slow to wrath. Well, I don't like that. Then, then dial it back. Take a breath. Don't get upset. Just let God's word speak. Just let God's word be authoritative. Well, I think that people should be free to marry whoever they want to marry. I understand that. And I think it's wrong for Christians to say otherwise. You're bigots, you're hate mongers, you're homophobic. All that. Other. I understand that. But Jesus says, for this cause, let a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. Jesus defined what marriage looks like, not me. I didn't make it up. And if you disagree with it, you, it's okay to disagree with it, but at the end of the day, you've got to toe the line. And when you realize that your feelings and your thoughts about life are in opposition to the Bible, you've got one choice, and that's to change. Don't get upset about it, be slow to anger. Again, verse number 20 says that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You're not going to be right with God by getting mad at him about it. So, again, we need to understand that the Bible is authoritative. You see, when we're frustrated and angry with the word, we just need a heart check. When you don't like what the Bible says, ask God to change your heart. You believe that the Bible is outdated realize that your views are far more progressive than God intended them to be then we have to come back to the point where scripture's authoritative even when we don't like it hey look i don't agree with some of the laws in our city and county but i try to abide by them notice i said try i think it's foolish that you can't park wherever you want and not put money in the meter i think that's dumb and look, we've gotten to the point where nobody even carries change anymore. They've got to put card readers in there to pay your, your parking meter. And then when I park in certain places in the city, they don't have a card reader. And I don't have any change. I just think to myself, well, I guess I'll just chance it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't like those laws. I think they're foolish. Okay, that's fine. It's the law. And if I get caught breaking the law, I'll pay $35 for it. How do you know that? Someone that I know has good experience with that. But here's the thing. If you park in a loading zone for more than three minutes, for example, a red zone, the fine goes not from $35 but to $55. It's a 10-foot difference sometimes between a parking spot and a red zone, and the difference is $20. I think it's the dumbest thing in the world. I think it's especially dumb when you pay a ridiculous amount of rent for a building with a loading zone and get a ticket in your own loading zone. I mean... if something like that happened, you know, that would be crazy. But guess what? You either pay the fine or you pay the the consequences of it. It's the law. You might disagree with it, but it is what it is. <coughs> How much higher is God's law than parking laws? Think about that. Hey, you don't have to like the Bible, all all of it. But I think as you grow in Christ-likeness, I think as you grow in sanctification, you'll come to understand, okay, God knows what he's doing. I don't have to like certain parts of the Bible, but I have to agree with God that it's so. That's Christian maturity. So again, he says, be slow to wrath because anger doesn't produce the righteous life that God desires. Getting mad doesn't help anybody. Get upset with God, blaming God, pointing fingers at God. That never advanced anybody. Never got them to where they were trying to go in life. Again, it comes back to having a proper understanding and a proper relationship with the Word of God. Is the Word of God authoritative in your life tonight? I think all of us would say a hearty amen. Yes, it is. The follow-on question, are you living as if it's authoritative I think we'd probably be a little bit slower to answer that question. Do you love the Word of God? Yes, we love the Word of God. Man, pick up your Bible, wave it around in a circle if you love the Word of God. Yeah, we love the Word of God. (laughs) That's easy to do. It's kind of fun sometimes too. It's honest. It's fun. But if you really love the Word of God, you'll obey it. You'll do what it says if we really believe that this book is authoritative for all matters of faith and practice, we don't get to just use it as a weapon to poke at other people to tell them why they're wrong. We have to allow the Word of God to examine our own lives. And I gotta be quick to hear. I gotta be slow to speak. And I gotta be slow to anger. And I've gotta allow the Word of God to work together with the Spirit of God to bring about change in my life. That's what this looks like. Most important thing in the world, if you're here tonight, and you're not saved. If you don't know for sure, if you died today, the heaven's are your home. Please don't leave here without being saved. Again, being saved is not a matter of joining our church or becoming a Baptist. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. And that's done by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for your sins. Put your faith and trust in him before it's too late. But for those of us that are Christians, man, let's love the word of God. Let's have a hunger, a desire, a craving to hear God's word preached and taught and to read it. Just can't get enough of it. Build your life upon it and you'll never be disappointed. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, A welcoming church family and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.